The stories in this book have been told and retold, cherished and revered by literally billions of people over thousands of years. People have devoted their entire lives to studying this book. There are hundreds of thousands of commentaries on it. And many people believe that this book had to have been written by God. The Torah, what's so special about it? Why is it so mesmerizing? And how has it managed to capture the human imagination for millennia? I'm David Kasher, a rabbi at Ikar in Los Angeles, and together we're going to study the weekly Torah portion of the Parsha and figure out why the Torah really is the best book ever. This past week, I was studying some Talmud with the other rabbis at Ikar. Most of the time we're just running around doing a million different things. It's kind of the nature of the job. But every once in a while we have a chance to just sit and study together. And when rabbis get together to just sit and study, the thing they're most likely to study is the Talmud. Now, the Talmud is a record of the extensive, almost encyclopedic discussion of Jewish practice that starts in the first and second centuries by a group of scholars that we call the rabbis. That's, that's where the term rabbi began. And one of the things the rabbis tried to do in the Talmud was to ground Jewish practice in the Torah itself. That is to use the text of the Torah to draw out all kinds of rules and ethics, the obvious meaning of the text, but also hidden implied meanings. And so to extract these layers of meaning, they began to formulate principles of interpretation. And the piece I was studying with my colleagues this week is one of the central rabbinic statements of their interpretive philosophy, their hermeneutics, to use the, the fancy word. So this is from Tractate Sanhedrin in the Talmud. And here's what they say. Mikra chad yotze lekamatamin. Multiple meanings can be derived from one verse. Ve'in tam echad yotze mikama mikraot. But one meaning cannot be derived from multiple verses. Okay, sounds like a little proverb here, but there are two massively important ideas here that kind of go together. So let me start with the second one, actually, the, this idea that one meaning cannot be derived from multiple verses. So what they're saying is that the, the Torah speaks with a language of economy, using its words carefully, not wasting a word. So you don't find the same idea expressed twice by two different verses, because that would be a waste of a verse. But lest you think that, that means that Every verse has one and only one meaning. No, they say, and, and this is the first part, multiple meanings can be derived from one verse. So not only does the Torah not waste words, but every verse and every word in the Torah is densely packed with many possible meanings. So they believe any given verse can be doing many things for us at once. Now, that's an extremely dynamic description of this text, infinitely rich and pulsing with possibility, almost bursting forth. And it tells us something about the rabbi's philosophy of language and, and something about their theology of revelation. But what I want to try to do today is to claim that this description of the Torah is justified not just by a particular theology, but by the language of the Torah itself. 
that the Torah is actually written with great efficiency, and that one little verse can be operating on multiple levels, transmitting multiple layers of meaning at once. And the verse I want to look at as an example is one that comes early on in the book of Exodus, the second book of the Torah, which we begin this week, the great story of slavery in Egypt and then divine salvation and then revelation. And since we're starting a whole new book, this is a good opportunity to see how much one verse can do to set the stage and, and signal the themes for what's to come. Okay, ready? So this is our verse, Exodus chapter 1, verse 7. Uvenei Yisrael paru v'yishratzu v'yirbu v'yatzmu b'ma'od me'od v'timaleha aratzotam. And the children of Israel were fruitful and swarmed and multiplied and grew very much, and the earth became filled with them. Now, this verse already seems jam-packed, just because it has four verbs in a row, each one building on the last for a kind of a bam, 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 bam rhythm. And then it's capped off with the, the very much. One of my heroes, the Parsha master, Necham Levovitz, uh, kind of awesomely describes this verse as being climaxed by the double-barreled adverbial intensifier. Okay, <laughs> that's the very much. So double-barreled. All right. But it isn't just verbs and adverbs that this verse is packed with. This short sentence also operates on multiple levels of meaning. So what I want to do is show how this potent verse functions in at least four different ways that contribute important narrative elements to the Exodus story. Okay, number one. This verse introduces the theme of birth in the book of Exodus. Okay, let's just start with the basic content of the verse, that fruitful multiplying and growing. All of this intense emphasis on birth in this verse flags for us what is going to be a major theme in the book of Exodus. And to start with, for the rest of this first chapter, Pharaoh is obsessed with Israelite births. First, he tells the midwives, Shifra and Pua, to observe all the births and kill all the males right away. And then he extends this command to all Egyptians. Then the beginning of the second chapter is all about Moses' birth and how his family and Pharaoh's daughter managed to keep him alive. Finally, the climax of the ten plagues, the, the one that really finally devastates Pharaoh, is the killing of all the firstborn sons of Egypt. A later commandment in Exodus makes reference to this and consecrates all firstborn Israelites to God. So that's a lot of birth in the story. And then on a macro level, the whole story of the Exodus has often been described as the birthing of the nation of Israel. The Maharal of Prague says, when Israel left Egypt, it was as if they were being born at that time. So you might call birth the theme of Exodus. And that theme begins with our little verse. Okay, number two. This verse solves a narrative problem. Okay, plain and simple, this verse comes in to take care of a perplexing gap in the story. Because remember, when Jacob came down to Egypt, there they were 70 people, a fact repeated in the first verse of Exodus. But then by the time they leave in chapter 12, we're told that they come to around 600,000 men. And that's not counting women and children, so we're talking well over a million. <laughs> 
And how did they grow into such a massive population? Even the 220 years they were in Egypt don't seem like they could possibly account for that kind of growth rate. So our verse comes to suggest that, in fact, the birth rate was unusually intense and way out of proportion. In fact, Rashi's comment on the verse takes that suggestion to the extreme. The women would give birth, he says, to six at a time. Every birth was sextuplets. It seems like a wild suggestion, but Rashi is drawing from Midrashim that make use of all those verbs and adverbs to explain their reckoning. So in Midrash Lekachtov, for example, we read, Rabbi Chia says every daughter of Israel would give birth to six, corresponding to these six terms. One, fruitful. Two, swarmed. Three, multiplied. Four, grew. Five, very. And six, much. Okay, that's cool. I, I mean, I'm not even sure that even sextuplets solves the actual math problem. And in fact, some of the Midrashim say, no, the number was 12 or even 60. But the point is that the verse emphasizes rapid growth as a way of quickly allowing us to think of the Israelites as nation-sized. So that's not bad for six words of narrative. Okay, number three, it connects the story back to Genesis. The first chapters of Exodus have all kinds of references back to the previous book of the Torah. In fact, the opening of the first verse, these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt, is an exact replication of a verse back in Genesis 46, when the family first went down to Egypt. So Exodus is pretty explicitly making the link between the two stories. But then the text goes on to make more links in all kinds of subtle ways, and our verse is the first really striking example of that. Because any reader of the Torah who hears the words fruitful and multiply is going to think of Adam and Eve. This was, after all, the very first thing that God said to them on the sixth day of creation. Pru urvu, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth. There's no mistaking the way that our verse in Exodus is playing on the earlier one, with all three of those verbs represented. And even the very much, me'od, is the same word that God used quite prominently at the end of that sixth day to describe the creation of the human. Not just good, as the Torah usually says it, but very good. Tov me'od. So the reference is clear enough. And that gets our attention and makes us more alert as Exodus then keeps doing this throughout the Parsha. But why is Exodus doing this? What, what does it mean? Well, there are lots of things that could be said about the relationship between the two books. But here, as we begin a new book and remember the beginning of the last book, maybe the most straightforward explanation of the link is that just as Genesis starts with the creation of the world and humankind, so Exodus is about a new kind of creation, the creation of a nation with a special mission in the world. And the first hint of that, again, is in this verse. Finally, number four, this verse gives us a sense of how the Egyptians started to see the Israelites. We just said that the language of our verse reminds us of the be fruitful and multiply command to the first humans. But there's an interesting additional verb stuck in between them. Vayishratsu, they swarmed. The root of this word is the same as 
as the root for vermin, creepy, crawly things. That is, the Israelites swarmed like vermin, like insects. In Leviticus, we're going to read that a sheretz is impure, and not only can we not eat it, but even touching it causes impurity. So this verse in Exodus gives us the first indication that the children of Israel were perceived as subhuman, even disgusting. And this is an important precursor to the acceptability of their enslavement. It's often the case that high birth rates of a minority population are unnerving to the majority and that they are then characterized as animalistic in their vigorous procreation. Shifra and Pua play on this fear when they tell Pharaoh the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They are lively, chayot. And it's no coincidence that the word for lively, chayot, can also mean wild animals. This is exactly how the Israelites begin to appear to the fearful eyes of the Egyptians. This not only provides the impetus to do whatever possible to slow this propagation down, like exterminating vermin, but also lends a characterization to the Hebrews that makes their slavery more acceptable, more like taming wild animals. So our verse manages to lend a whole new perspective on the story, allows it to see it through the Egyptian gaze, just by slipping in one extra word. So there you have it. Introducing big themes and meta-themes, filling in narrative gaps, cross-referencing Genesis, adding the Egyptian perspectives, that's a lot of work for one little verse to be doing. And the rabbis were certainly right here that multiple meanings can be derived from one verse. And I can't help but note, after all of that, that the narrative power of this verse mirrors the content of its words. Our verse is swarming with interpretation, fruitful with possibility. Our little verse like every verse in the Torah, is pregnant with meaning. Best Book Ever was produced by Ben Cooley and edited by Vera Blossom, and our theme song is Pitchuli by Hillel Tige. You can listen to more of his beautiful music on iTunes and Spotify. And while you're there, why not subscribe to Best Book Ever if you haven't already. If you're interested in supporting this podcast and our work, you can visit us at ecar.org and donate or Venmo us at ikarla. That's I-K-A-R-L-A. Thanks a lot and see you next week.